0: Thank you for attending the, the highly anticipated, I think, launch of colonialism and modern social theory by Gaminda K. Bambra and John Homewood. Uh, the book focused on the role of colonialism in the development of the, modern, of the modern society that we live in, for engaging with the works of canonical figures from Hobbes to Hegel um, to Du Bois. The book ultimately argues for a reconstruction of social theory um, that should lead to a better understanding of contemporary social thought, its limitations and its wider possibilities. So in this event, Authors Gaminda and John will discuss their motivations behind writing the book in dialogue with uh, Dr. Su and Professor Michaela Benson, who I'm sure will have some, some critical questions uh, to ask of the authors. Um, so to introduce the authors, uh, before I introduce kind of the format and then we get started, Gaminda K. Balmbray is a professor of post-colonial and decolonial studies at the University of Sussex, a trustee at the Sociological Review Foundation and a fellow of the British Academy. She's the co-editor of Discover Society an online social research magazine, and editor of Global Social Theory. She's author of the prize-winning *Rethinking Modernity*, *Post-Colonialism and the Social Sociological Imagination* and *Connected Sociologies*. She's also the co-editor of *Decolonizing the University*, and most importantly, the project director of the *Connected Sociologies* curriculum project. John Homewood is Emiratus Professor of Sociology at the University of Nottingham. He's an expert wit- he was an expert witness sorry, for the defence in the misconduct cases brought against senior teachers falsely accused of a plot to Islamisized schools in Birmingham. Together with Theresa O'Toole, he is the author of Countering Extremism in Birmingham Schools, The Truth About the Birmingham Trojan Horse Affair. And discussants, uh, Professor Mikula Benson is a sociologist with expertise in migration, citizenship and identity. In particular, her research focuses on Britishness and belonging among Britain's immigrants and overseas citizens at moments of major political transformation, including Brexit and decolonization. Her current position as Professor of Public Sociology at Lancaster University builds on nearly 20 years of teaching in universities around the UK and her service since 2016 as the editor in chief of the Sociological Review. She's published several academic monographs, including The British in Rural France by Manchester University Press, Lifestyle Migration. And Colonial Traces in Malaysia and Panama, co authored with Karen O'Reilly for Palgrave and numerous other journals. Dr. Suming, who is a senior lecturer in, post, in political science and sociology, and leads the environment, development, and sustainability and social impact, sorry, socioeconomic impact research classes at NUI uh, Galway. She researches and teaches on human rights, human development, public goods, development alternatives, decoloniality, global activism, and higher education. Um, finally, this event is hosted by the Connected Sociologies Curriculum Project, which seeks to make open access resources for the teaching of sociology. The Connected Sociologies Curriculum Project is funded by the Sociological Review Foundation, who are also co-hosting this event with us. So the structure of today, um, John and Caminda are going to kind of set out why they wrote the book. Um, and then Sue and Michaela are going to kind of comment and have some questions, and then we'll kind of open it up to questions um, from you in the audience if we have time. Um, So John, I'm gonna hand it over to you when you're ready. Okay.
1: Well, thanks uh, very much. And first, uh, Gamindra and I would like to thank everyone for coming to this Zoom book launch event for colonialism and modern social theory. It's gratifying to have so many people here and possibly fortunate that it's not in person because it would be a very heavy drink spill indeed. We're also particularly pleased, too, that Suming and Michaela Benson are joining us to discuss the issues of colonialism and sociological theory. I'm going to say a few words about uh, our purposes in writing the book before Gaminda summarizes some of our conclusions about their implications. And uh, people as, uh, who've had as long a career in uh, sociology as I have will recognize that our title deliberately evokes Anthony Giddens' Capitalism and Modern Social Theory, which was published exactly 50 years ago. It helped to inaugurate a way of discussing issues of contemporary sociology through a reflection on the classics of the discipline, in his case, Marx, Weber, and Durkheim. Of course, that canon has since been contested, including its Eurocentric character. It's been added to but the idea of a canon remains remarkably stable, and nearly all of its iterations, Marx, Weber, and Durkheim continue to figure. In addition, most sociology programs in Europe and North America are organized through a compulsory course on classical sociological theory as a precursor to a discussion of issues of contemporary relevance. Now, as we make explicit, Our book is about European social theory and how it is shaped conceptually and methodologically. Specifically, it's about the absence of colonialism and empire in sociological discussions of European and global modernity. It's also about the consequences of that absence in terms of what we argue to be the malformation of the European sociological tradition, or perhaps more properly, European sociological traditions. We're not seeking simply to add colonialism and empire to the repertoire of sociological concepts, but to show how existing concepts, whether of the individual subject, the nation state, social class, or the idea of an unfinished project of modernity, and thus of the very idea of sociological critique, can be seen to be problematic even in their restricted domains, once colonialism and empire are properly acknowledged. Of course, there are many important issues that lie outside the scope of the book, issues of how colonialism was experienced by those subject to its violence, or alternative futures to those conceived within European thought, for example. But our focus is specific and more limited the deconstruction and reconstruction of European social theory. Hegemonic constructions are necessarily criticised from the outside, but they also need to be criticised from within. And that's, if you like, the purpose of our book. And what surprised us when we began to write the book was that in the 50 years since Giddens wrote, And notwithstanding multiple other presentations of the classics, there has been no book that systematically applied the classics to the issues of colonialism and empire that formed the context of the development of European social theory. And here we confronted another surprise. Colonialism and empire have been absent from nearly all secondary treatments of the canon and have remained so until very recently, but they were not absent from the writers we discuss, even if they were not central to their concerns. Our first task then was to explain this double displacement. How did classical social theorists write about colonialism and empire in a way that enabled their significance to be elided? And how best to demonstrate the process by which that elision took place. And it was as an answer, answering these questions that governed the organization of the book and the writers selected for consideration. So, where we start from, that is, after a preliminary explanation of our purposes uh, in the book, is the role attributed to different stages in the development of society and how modernity is distinguished from pre-modern types of society. With this distinction in place, a distinction between the pre-modern and the modern, colonialism, its mechanisms of dispossession, settlement, and forced labor, comes to be attributed to the late stages of feudalism and not seen as intrinsic to the commercial modern society that comes to be the primary object of sociological interest. And in the book, we set this process out in the development of modern social theory from Hobbes to Hegel, with the Scottish enlightenment in between. A theory of possessive individualism, for example, is widely understood to be a precursor to European capitalism, despite the fact that it arises most specifically in the context of justifications of European colonialism. And most significantly, significantly for the subsequent development of sociology, the idea of a transition from feudal aristocratic society is also central to Tocqueville's idea of modern political democracy and the society of equals that he presents as uh, as a, a main feature of modernity. But he presents it alongside racialized domination in the US and in Algeria and in other French colonies. So one has both the mechanism by which colonialism is effaced alongside its recognition and its location as a moment in the transition to modernity rather than uh, modernity itself. And in this process, this is one of the ways in which the fact that modern European nation states are simultaneously imperial states, or at least as they develop they become imperial states, is taken as given and not connected to the colonial ventures that preceded their consolidation as empires. The nation states and its forms of political legitimation, for example, are the focus and legacy of Weber's work. While Durkheim discusses questions of social integration and human values separately from empire. And this is so despite the fact that uh, when Weber and Durkheim are writing, this is at the height of empire and at the moment before the conflagration of uh, imperial powers in the First World War. Marx, of course, does discuss imperialism, but he discusses it as brought into being by the logic of the development of capitalism. And this, too, separates colonialism from imperialism and, we suggest, involves a failure to give a proper understanding of how colonialism structures capitalism. It's as if capitalism brings imperialism in its wake rather than colonialism determining the future and the social structures of capitalism itself. And what we want to do in suggesting in the book and through the figure of Du Bois, that we think uh, is in some ways continuous with this classical tradition at the same time as breaking with it, is presented in his writings in terms of the naturalization of colonialism and empire, which is evident in early aspects of Du Bois's thought. And we uh, discuss uh, Du Bois as beginning where Tocqueville leaves his account of the United States. That is with the absence of democracy for two of what de Tocqueville calls the three races that inhabit the land. Although in truth, Du Bois has little to say about indigenous, Uh, people in the Americas, but in seeking initially to understand a local colour line, Du Bois comes to the idea of a global colour line constructed by colonialism and empire. And so in this way, we suggest that Du Bois uh, should be thought of as properly part of the canon, but also we need to understand his role to be its disruptor. So unlike Michael Burrowoy, say, and his recent talk at the uh, ISA uh, forum, we don't regard that Du Bois' place is secured by a convergence with Marx, but rather the opposite. His I- insights are in fact, we argue, irreconcilable with those of Marx or other classical sociologists, and they mark the need for a reconstruction of sociological theory. And what I'll now do is pass over to Gaminda to say more about how we conceive that reconstruction.
2: Okay, thanks for that, John. So I'll just follow straight on and say that, you know, as John has stated in the book, what we seek to do is to think through how modern social theory could be differently conceptualized if we took colonialism seriously. And so our focus on Tocqueville, Marx, Weber, Durkheim and Du Bois is less to do with them as individual scholars than thinking through what they have bequeathed to sociology and the social sciences more generally. That is, it's on the way in which their work and commentaries on their work has come to establish the conceptual frameworks of social theory that determine the shape and possibilities of our disciplines. These frameworks we suggest have been established without taking colonialism seriously. And they've resulted in what we call in the conclusion, the fictions of social theory. And what we argue in the book is that any renewal of social theory requires us to recognize and address these fictions through an understanding that places colonialism as central to their configuration and redress. So the fictions we set out are the fiction of stages of social development, the fiction of modern subjectivity, the fiction of the nation state, the fiction of class and formerly free labor, and the fiction of sociological reason. And I'll just go through each of these briefly. The first of the fictions is associated with the idea of a state of nature. This was developed in Hobbes and Locke as part of their discussions of the possession and use of resources that are seen to be available in common. It appears to establish a common humanity, but it does so in order to justify inequality and differential treatment. The idea of the state of nature depends upon a distinction between the state of nature and the state of society, where the latter is actually the colonizing society of Europe. Out of this initial construction, there arises a concern to delineate the characteristics of modern society against which other societies can be described, classified and arranged hierarchically in terms of ideas of development and progress. And what we argue is that we need to move away from the idea of types of society, which can be understood separately from the relationships among them, and instead understand how colonial connections have structured ideas of difference and domination. The second fiction is that of the special nature of modern subjectivity, here, the individual capable of property is contrasted to those who are either incapable of or indifferent to property. And yet these latter states are the product of European colonialism and not simply the condition confronted by Europeans. So in this way pre-modern societies often come to be understood as beset by traditional authority and inadequate selves And they don't come to be seen as the basis of knowledge and experiences from which we can also learn. The third fiction is the idea of the nation-state. Weber's formulation has become the exemplary expression of this position within the social sciences, where the nation-state is understood to have a legitimate claim to the monopoly of violence within a given territory, with legitimacy associated with the state's responsibility for, and to its citizens within that territory. And yet not all members of the population are regarded as citizens or as members of what Tocqueville called the society of equals. Subjects of empire, for example, are denied inclusion in the community to whom the patrimony of empire is distributed. And after decolonization, they come to be denied citizenship within former colonizing societies. This is the context in which those who share a common political heritage of empire are now represented as immigrants within its metropoles and as such have come to be presented as threats to the solidarity of the nation and its social contract. The fourth fiction is that of class and formerly free labor. Marx recognized that modern society was developing as a society of unequals, that is as a class divided society. The class division that Marx described depends upon the centrality of formally free labor and the commodification of labor power within capitalist modernity. This role is called into question, however, once we understand the colonial and imperial nature of modernity. Commodified labor power does not develop as the central form of capitalism and moreover capitalist nation states are able to divide their populations between national citizens and colonial subjects. As Du Bois noted, this then provides possibilities of the decommodification of labor power within the metropole by using colonial patrimonies in the provision of welfare and other collective goods nationally that are denied to those in the wider empire. Karen E Fields, a recent translator of Durkheim states, and I quote, unreasonable divisions of humankind seem to be born from reason itself, not from its opposite. And this leads me to our final fiction of sociological reason. It's perhaps easy to understand that enlightenment thought has its darker side, and even to consider sociology as being both within and outside that tradition. However, sociology's task cannot only be to reveal that darker side, but also to consider its own implication in its construction. Understanding sociology and the social sciences more generally as historically formed would place them into conversation with those represented as other and open it to learning. This is not a form of relativism and nor is it an argument for multiple perspectives. But rather we're making an argument for a transformation of our own perspective as a consequence of learning from others. Colonialism structures European modernity as well as European thought, and in consequence, recognizing its significance is an opportunity, as well as a necessity to practice sociology and the social sciences differently. So I'll leave it there.
0: Thank you very much for that, um, Caminda. Um, I'm just going to hand over to Sue for Sue's questions and comments but I also want to say I saw a couple of hands raised Um, but if you have any questions it'd be great if you could put them in the Q&A box and we'll get to them at the end. Um, Ideally the Q&A box not the chat box because it becomes a little bit difficult uh, to read in there Um, but Sue I'm going to hand it over to you now.
3: Okay thank you so much. Um, It's very exciting to be at this launch and I'm very excited by this book. So I really want to humbly thank John and Gorinda for uh, inviting me to read it and comment on it because it's, um, it's an incredible resource which I am immediately going to adopt for my course in social theory. Um, And, uh, but it's not going to be an easy adoption, because it's a really challenging book. Um, It challenges us to uh, uh, renew sociology and social theory. So it's, it's a very, very, it's an invitation to a very, very big piece of work, uh, which is an, a, an honor to join in and accompany uh, so other sociologists in, uh, in rethinking and renewing, um, uh, you know, our own canon and the canon that we teach, but at the same time, thinking about our complicity. So lots of dope moments when I'm reading this book on, you know, what I myself as someone who's been teaching social theory and sociology for years and years have been complicit in doing um, something which has been frustrating me for the same number of years. So it's very, uh, it's been you a know, very eye opening to read this book. And to think about what what it means to adopt it and to teach uh, with it. So, uh, first of all, then it's this exactly this post colonial intervention into the construction of modern social theory in its canonical form. uh, Pointing to this main problem of modern social theory, which is its amnesiac nature it's uh, uh, failure to remember the significance of colonialism or to connect to that significance in a meaningful way. Now, um, this is an introspectively critical intervention that treats making connections uh, not in as an addition to the canon, but as a reconstitution of the canon. So I really love this um, phrase Gurminder uh, uh, coined Uh, about what decolonial thinking is about or decolonial theorizing is about thinking about difference in a way that makes a difference to what was originally thought. So it's not just about the difference or the other but it's about making a difference to the original canon of thinking. So this is really a major contribution that this book does for modern social theory. Um, And this opens the way then to decolonization as a moment of uh, radical rethinking and restructuring and towards thinking about solidarity and the work of sociology in in accompanying this building of solidarity or imagining of solidarity as first and foremost taking place through difficult conversations that unearth uneven uh, power relations uh, to quote good friend Sarah Salem on thinking about what transnational feminist solidarity in a post-colonial world would look like. It's kind of like a political work as well as an intellectual work. Uh, But it's quite a pragmatic book in many ways because it's about starting with the canon and opening up the canon to its own silences and thereby opening social theory to this more reflexive and relational approach. So that's the first point that I have. Uh, the second point that I wanted to build on was to answer criticism that I saw uh, about potentially about this discussion in the book, um, which was that this is a decolonial discussion that focused too much on the metropolitan perspectives, the perspectives of the colonizers. Now, Gurminde and John have both ably pointed out that that wasn't the objective of the book yeah the objective is not to start from an alternative geographical place or a different historical experience those experiences of the colonized areas uh, or their treatment as you know uh, or highlighting or spotlighting their agency it's really the point of this particular decolonial invent- intervention is first and foremost address a com- the complicity of social theory in its own canonical form with cultural imperialism as a kind of um, uh, a groundwork, a first thing that we have to do, yeah? Before we connect it with what happens elsewhere, we have to deal with something that's made here by us and what we as sociologists and other social theorists have an everyday complicity in, in re-inscribing and uh, re-canonizing a form of cultural imperialism which is what Bourdieu and Wacquant call the cunning of imperialist reason, yet yeah, in their reworking of Hegel's philosophy of world history. So by which to say cultural imperialism is not a, a special different topic for social theory to study in week 11, but it's a problem of modern social theory's own commonplaces, its own notions of theses with which, with which one argues, about which one does not argue. So we should start arguing about what it is, right, because the effect of the commonplaces through this repeated global circulation of the canon, the Marx, Durkheim, Weber, as an apparently universal practice of doing theory, neutralizes their real historical context. So the cunning of reason is this game of this preliminary definitions aimed at substituting an appearance of logical necessity for a contingency of denegated sociological necessities. This is the sociological question, right? So what we tend to do is to obfuscate and to elide the historical roots of a whole ensemble of questions and notions, yeah? which we call our subject, sociology. Although and will can't say, you know, different fields of reception will call it different things. They will call it philosophy. They will call it history. They will call it political science. So that's that's the broader stakes that, um, that are necessary stakes. It's not just recognizing marginalized cultures or marginalized epistemes uh, by the academic canon. It's rethinking the academic canon itself. Um, And, you know, to point to and analyze the social mechanisms by which a sort of false universalization takes place and that we are part of it, reproducing and spreading this false universalization that takes place through elision and silencing and absence. Um, So what they do is to rehistoricize the centrality of colonization and the colonization of Americas, uh, in particular as foundational to these common places that we circulate in sociology. Okay, do I have another minute?
0: Yeah, if you want one.
3: Yeah, okay. So yeah, I just want to reflect on why this makes a difference to me personally, as someone who really struggles with teaching social theory, though I really love it as well, um, is uh, reflecting on, you know, having taught sociology and social theory for 20 over years, um, how reading the different chapters in this book have helped me to overcome a feeling of being very stupid when I'm trying to teach this stuff. And um, when I try to teach this canon of social theory, the Marx, Zirkheim, Weber, to which uh, Gorminda and John have added uh, to Tocqueville and Du Bois, Uh, as well as the prequel of Hobbes, Locke, and Hegel, um, is that the whole reasoning itself is trickily non-straightforward. So this is this cunning of reason thing. Um, and I realized as I was reading the chapters that you know this background of colonialism is the story about reason in the context of. dispossession that begins with this rise of capitalism in Europe it's spread elsewhere through colonialism imperialism and the origin of double standards and an enfolded and self contradicting logic that make theory not straightforward and theorizing much more like cunning than like reason and therefore really hard to teach in a good faith way. So, you know, I I do thank you for that. And I also look forward to having further conversations about the further ideas of double standards and unfoldings because I think that the Color line and the global color line, national and global, is is very important and central to understanding the coloniality of thought. But also, there's a gender line and a nature line, which uh, you know are further possibilities for us to think about. So, thanks so much.
0: That's great. Thanks, Sue. I'm just going to hand over now to Michaela, um and then um, John and Caminda will have a, a right of reply if you like.
4: Okay, um, nice to see you all everybody. And thank you very much, Gaminda and John for inviting me to comment on the book and, and to read the book, um, as well as to Sue for those, uh, those fantastic comments. Um, what I really liked about the book, um, there were so many things to kind of take away from it. I mean, it's very well written, but I also really like the way that the book shifts to looking at the deconstruction of European social theory. By focusing on how colonialism um, kind of was eluded was by, uh, by this project of constructing modern social theory. Um, and I do also think what's really important about this book, and I know that John and Gaminda have emphasized it, and so is Sue, is that it offers a way of thinking about how we might reconstruct modern social theory to actually engage with the colonialism that was central to the production of modern societies. So I can see how this critique, while uncomfortable and quite unsettling probably, not only to students and teachers, but also to the broader sociological community. I can see how this could be and should be integrated into how modern social theory is taught as a way of offering to students another way into thinking about the limits of canonical thinking and the exclusions that this reproduces. In particular, the book focuses on how race, a central feature of the social structures of modernity, is absent from these canonical works and links this to how colonialism is at best marginalised and more often absented from understandings of the modern world, even though it played a central and constitutive role within it. So we get a very, very clear picture through the pages of the book about how modern social theory really is deeply entangled with colonialism while at the same time being complicit in absenting it. Um, And I think, I I mean, I really, (laughs) when I was reading the book, I was thinking back to my own undergraduate training in modern social theory and the kind of dryness of those texts on Marx, Durkheim and Weber Um, And, you know, knowing that these were compulsory, but never really quite um, being shown why why those even mattered, actually. And I think that that's a kind of an important point to take away. So I think that actually the kind of the playful, I'm going to call it a playful structure of the book, which does take those predominantly dead white men um, uh, as its kind of central focus, really does lend itself well to becoming compulsory text. On many of those courses, but I want to emphasize here that the argument at the core of this that Sue's already described as being you know quite challenging, um, is so much more than ad colonialism and stir, which I think you know um, is 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 would be a real disservice to the book if people were to walk away from today thinking that that was what the book is. The book is actually a close reading of the like it or not canonical male thinkers in in modern social theory and how they have been taken up uh, within the discipline, within sociology, I think predominantly, which draws out how colonialism is absent, misrepresented, and the moments when it is acknowledged in those works, but, but perhaps not as fully as it needs to be. To me, what also really stood out is the way in which these thinkers have been taken up and the continuing omission of colonialism in these interpretations. So our own complicity as a body of scholars in reproducing exactly that absenting of colonialism. The strength of the book lies in showing why this matters for how we think about modern society and how this reframes questions of social justice and inequalities. This means taking seriously the colonial histories that have more often been overlooked in trying to make sense of contemporary social problems. So it really lays bare why this reconstruction matters at this point in time. But beyond a teaching text, I think that this book really throws down a gauntlet to sociology today. And in turning to this, I actually want to reflect on the trajectory of the work that led to this book both through um, both authors' bodies of published works, but also through the public sociology initiatives that they've been involved in. Among them, Global Social Theory, decolonizing the University, Discover Society, and Connected Sociologies. I actually think it's important to read the book in the context of those broader projects, so it's not it doesn't emerge in isolation. All of these initiatives encourage us to think otherwise, drawing on other thinkers, other knowledge, but also thinking about the contextual production of theories and concepts we work with, not with the aim of displacing them, but recognizing their limits and how they might be connected with other histories, theories and knowledges to shape the sociological imagination differently. I would characterize this approach in terms of opening up the sociological imagination. This requires agility and curiosity. But it also means allowing ourselves and our knowledge to be unsettled and to work reflexively with this. But importantly, these public sociology initiatives were envisaged as collaborative and collective projects of communicating a different sociology, a sociology otherwise. And while Gaminda and John have been instrumental in putting in place the building blocks and curating the content, They have also opened up these projects to a community of scholars in ways which should inspire us all. So back to the book. In many ways, I see this new book as part of this broader project. It's just one piece of a bigger jigsaw and there's a lot to be gained from thinking about this within that context. It offers a starting point for thinking differently. The challenges for us lie in how we take this up in our own practices and projects. In other words, this too lays the foundations for a new way of thinking about working with, teaching and practising modern social theory. And it offers prospects for thinking about how the canonical thinking, so taken for granted, might be repositioned in a decolonized global field of social theory. And it's to this broader project that I now turn. In particular, I think for me, one of the kind of outstanding contributions to the book, which actually is a theme that, that has, has, has come through quite a lot of the work that John and Gaminda have produced over the last few years, is this understanding of methodological nationalism. And I think that that phrase has become banal in sociology, but through the work presented in the book and elsewhere, it's taken on a new life. I think that while it's been a phrase that grew out of the desire of scholars, not only in sociology, but across the social sciences, to remind us that the nation should not be the only unit of analysis, the global and the transnational were equally social spheres that needed attending to in our analyses. What the presentation of methodological nationalism in this book does is to introduce the longer histories of how the exclusion of these relationships and ties that stretch beyond nations had become intrinsic to understandings. And in particular, how colonialism was inherent to the emergence of the modern nation state and the modern social theory that emerged to make sense of consequently nationally delimited societies. So this critical reconceptualization of methodological nationalism is an important contribution to calls more generally for new approaches to making sense of global inequalities shift beyond their presentist and ahistorical frame. Um, and I would argue that, you know, the, the, the kind of the, um, the mainstream of global inequalities still is very much caught in this frame where actually, you know, they don't take seriously those histories um, to the point where, where, where they produce very limited understandings of those inequalities and indeed the solutions that might be presented in order to address them. I think that what's really crucial here is that this framing of methodological nationalism forces us to think not only about the theories that we use, but to question the conceptual underpinnings of our work. And this is where I see the challenge that has been presented to us as sociologists. No matter what stage we're at in our careers, whether we're established or new scholars coming into that, we should all be asking those questions of ourselves. Now, to conclude, no book can do everything, but this one offers a significant contribution that should cause established and new scholars alike to sit up and take notice. There are other questions that we might want to ask about what reinstating colonialism as central to the construction of the modern world might open up. For example, and I know that Sue's already mentioned this, the absence of the discussion of gender in these canonical texts. But to me, where the promise for this book lies is as a building block, an invitation for a wider conversation about how we might approach our fields of research, the concepts we use and the concepts we use differently with a clear agenda for making clear why this matters and how it changes understandings. Now, before I go away, I do have a slightly well, I don't know whether it's provocative, to be frank, but it's just uh, just a, a little thing that's been going through my head today while, 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 um, while John and Gaminda and Sue were speaking, which is, I think that the way in which my presentation, um, my reading of the book and my presentation today has been constructed is in thinking about how the book might contribute to British and European sociologies. But I did find myself as someone originally trained in social anthropology, asking the question about how this might resonate in other disciplines within the social sciences, who have similar canons, but not exactly identical canons to sociology. So how then might it converge and diverge uh, with their histories of knowledge production? Thank you.
0: Thank you very much for that, um, Michela, and um, Sue as well. So. Yeah, John and uh, Gaminda, um, I guess it's your chance to reply to some of these uh, comments, provocations, and uh, sort of questions. And then, like I said, we'll, we'll do a bit more of a broader Q&A. So keep putting questions in the chat box. Um, in the Q&A box, sorry, not the chat box. Don't put questions in the chat box, ideally. Um, but yeah, over to you, John and Gaminda. Uh,
1: well, should I, I begin? Because I was um, just attracted by one thing that uh, Michaela said, and also I think uh, assuming it, it implied the same, and that is that the book can in some ways be thought of as breathing life into dead white men. And I take that quite serious because the idea was to try not to simply criticize the writers we're looking at, but to make them interesting and significant, even in the process of Uh, criticising them. And I've seen in the the Q&A, Jose Manuel uh, Barreto has said, well, isn't this a Eurocentric, um, uh, isn't this an exercise in Eurocentrism? And I think both Gamindra and I see Eurocentrism not as a question of who is speaking or even the place of speaking, although these are really important uh, issues to consider but a particular monological form of speaking. That is a way of speaking that is not open to learning. And for us, the process of being open to learning requires self-understanding. And so part of the problem is that if we think of European social thought in universalistic terms and we wish to deconstruct it, then we have to, in a sense, open up a space of self-understanding to create that possibility of uh, looking outwards and learning from others. And in a way that's to recognize different places from which people are speaking and to remove or seek to remove some of the asymmetries of in the construction of knowledge. But that can, that has to be done we think internally as well as an engagement uh, you know externally so our, our intention was not a dismissive intention but an intention to say there's something interesting here but what is interesting is different from what you might have initially uh, 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 thought and uh, uh, that's the uh, you know the sense of it as a Uh, creating a conversation or creating uh, a dialogue.
2: And I mean, I I completely agree. And just to add to that, I guess there's a sense that um, a lot of work has been done that doesn't end up in the book. So it's not as if we haven't engaged with post-colonial theory, decolonial theory, learned from theorists and theories from elsewhere and engaged with that work in in other publications and, and so on, and drawn the insights of that with citations and references within this book as well. And what the focus of this book is, is to look at the conceptual architecture that the focus on these scholars has established within the social sciences. And I think within the social sciences generally, because the idea of modernity, for example, fundamentally structures the way in which the social science disciplines orient themselves in very specific sorts of ways, whether they're about the pre-modern, such as anthropology or the modern, such as sociology, law, you know. And so there's a way in which the, the, the concepts that have been established through the accumulated knowledge that has been generated around the work of these particular thinkers has come to establish a sort of common sense understanding of disciplines. And in part, what we want to do by focusing on these particular figures is to also show a light on how, what they have done collectively or the way in which the disciplines have built on their work has established a particular conceptual architecture that we also think is in need of transformation. So it's not about who said what, but actually how do we reconceptualize the discipline as a whole? So I don't
0: know if you want to take some questions, Amit. or yeah, cool. Um, well, John, you kind of answered one of them, uh, for me. So I've i dismissed that one. Um, so on to the next one. So that, quite quite an interesting question from um Chris. Chris says, um, when you talk about Marx, um, I guess within the book and just generally from the discussion, um, are you talking about the way in which his um his his social theory works in his own work in the writings and practice, or how he's interpreted? um because Chris argues um that his writing is far more sophisticated than it's given credit for in the way people interpret often.
1: Well we certainly credit Marx with being sophisticated we're sort of conscious of course of how the secondary literatures have written uh, about Marx and other writers but um the uh we are writing directly about the texts of our um, chosen authors. So we are discussing uh, uh, Marx's arguments about colonialism. We have discussion about his uh, arguments about slavery and uh, uh, the transformation of plantation economy. So these are, uh, you know, crucial issues addressed within Marx and still, We're arguing that what is taken conceptually from Marx is the figure of the capital labor relation and particularly understood through the commodification of labor power. And we're suggesting that colonialism is part of the explanation of why Marx's expectations about the future of modernity are not realized in the way he uh, sets out. in all the, I mean, our discussions, we're not seeking to knock down, uh, you know, easy arguments. We're seeking to be generous to the positions that we are criticizing in order to get the maximum purchase for the ideas, the critical ideas that we're 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 developing against them. So, I, I would say yes, we do answer the sorts of um questions that uh, you know Chris is, is rightly you know raising as you know that all authors are more sophisticated and uh, nuanced than they appear within secondary uh, literatures
2: and I guess just to add I mean it is this aspect of what difference does locating these authors in an understanding of the colonial histories that were present at the time. What difference does that make to the way in which we read them? So it's to sort of look at both what it is that they have said about colonialism, because some of them have spoken about it, but the secondary literature often doesn't pick up what it is that those authors have said but also if we were to locate these authors within the times in which they were living and think both about what they did talk about and what they didn't talk about and how what they didn't talk about was also significant to the theories that they come to develop, then how could that enable us to rethink what it is that they're saying in terms of those sorts of acknowledgements and silences? And so in that sense, it's very much a conversation with these thinkers and a location of them within those histories to try and see what, what needs to be done differently as a consequence of this.
0: Okay, great. Nicola um, or Sue, did you have anything to say on that? Or all, all good? Okay, great. Um, another question, which I think, to be honest, is probably open to, to you all, um, which I think is quite interesting is, is it possible to define the disciplinary project of sociology without mentioning the concept of the modern modernity and modernism or are these things kind of inherently intertwined?
2: Well I would argue that that sociology as a discipline emerges as a reflection on the processes that come to be identified as modern so sociology as a discipline is quite distinct in the sense that it both emerges during what's understood as the period of modernity, but also emerges as an attempt to make sense of these changes and the way in which it recognizes particular histories but not others, come to construct its very frameworks so that the Industrial Revolution and the French Revolution come to be central to framing the way in which modernity is understood. And there's an absolute failure to understand colonialism and imperialism that is uh, coextensive with these other sorts of moments. So those sorts of absences are structurally there within sociology, and I don't think that we can expand or transform our understandings of sociology without taking seriously its focus on modernity and its failure to recognize colonialism as the need to transform it. So to me, these issues are integral.
0: Great, right. um, I'm assuming no one else wants to come in, or well, John, are you ready? Are you going
1: to jump in on it? Well, I uh, just jump in and say that you know the, you know, ideally, one reads things with a wish to find things that are unexpected in them. So one of the pleasures of writing about Durkheim was to discover that Durkheim was less of a modernist than is previously represented, and that it's a misrepresentation to think of his uh, shift, the ideas of mechanical and organic uh, solidarity in stadial terms. So that in that sense, uh, if we're going to use the language of modernity, non-modernity, that Durkheim is arguing that non-modern forms are integral to what we understand as modernity. And indeed, Karen E. Fields, who you know is a, you know, a, a, you know, a superb commentator on Durkheim and uh, also has imagined um, a conversation between Du Bois and Durkheim, that if you think that uh, Locke in the beginning of modern social theory is in the beginning, everywhere. Uh, was America, that Durkheim, uh, Karen Field suggests, has a a different kind of take. In the end, we are all Australian. That is what he finds in his uh, studies of elementary forms of religious life. It's something common to all life in common. And so there are, you know, I think the, the important thing to stress, There are surprises, and if you wish to disrupt ways in which we understand things, one has to approach things with the capacity to be surprised that uh, the concepts of modernity or the idea of modernity is not so firmly fixed, even in the white writers that people think of as most ca- encapsulating the idea of modernity for modern social theory, as with uh, uh, Durkheim on uh, solidarity.
0: Brilliant, um, thank you for that. So, yes, yeah, sorry, sorry.
3: Can I just add a little thought really about the centrality of modernity as a kind of really tricky problem? Because it's, it, it is so, it's, it really structures our thought that we have a structure of expectation that the present is in some way radically different from the past when uh, it hasn't really made a break from it. So it's a kind, the very concept of modernity negates the past, but yet, you know, doesn't get away from it really. Um, So it's something that, you know, we can never not in sociology have to somehow deal with this Concept since the concept has happened and we can't make it go away, because it really structures, you know, our expectations about, you know, what is reality, what is history, where do we come from, where are we going to? And then this idea of a radical negation and and, and you know the present being somehow different from the past, that structure of expectation, which is mired in this stadial theory and these other fictions which go along with it as well. So um, yeah, I I don't really have a very useful point to make about it, but um, yeah, I felt like I had to make a point.
0: (laughs) No, no worries, Susie, thank you for that. Um, So we've got another question, um, which is, and this was touched upon um, by both Sue and Michaela in the discussion. and it says that um, Gaminda's presentation on the five fictions uh, didn't uh, mention um, gender in relation to the classical social language we canon or modernity. And I quickly then want to transition into a shameless plug for the Connected Sociologies curriculum project. Um, in our making of the Modern World unit, we have two sessions, not one, but two sessions on uh, gender and modernity, which you might want to check out. Um, but while you're checking that out, I'm going to pass over to Gaminda to respond to that question.
2: I think John should respond to it in the interests
1: of gender equity. Well, uh, of course, you know, gender is of fundamental Im- importance, but uh, one can't deal with all you know topics at once. But I mean, one of the inspirations for the book, and you know, where we uh, begin is with feminist epistemology as. Uh, arguments about the deconstruction uh, of knowledge and the located character of knowledge so sometimes uh, you know one um, you know and in particular Lynn hankins and nelson's arguments about epistemological communities so we're you know sensitive and conscious of those uh, issues but there were and there were but there were specific, arguments that we were addressing in terms of the cons- conceptual frameworks of sociology that colonialism and the absent history of colonialism had particular purchase on. But, uh, uh, but yes, absolutely, uh, feminist issues, issues around gender are absolutely central to what sociology Is about, and to some extent, we are bringing uh, the argument about colonialism into a space where there's already arguments about uh, feminist epistemological uh, critiques of uh, sociology and other social sciences.
4: Can I just come in there? I think, I mean. I, I, I appreciate that fully, John. Um, and, and I did pick that up in the text as well. And I suppose my kind of way into it was actually thinking about how gender was caught up in colonialism too. And so how gender, colonialism and modernity come together um, at that point. So, you know, you know, when you're looking at um, other works on coloniality, gender is a really significant formation at the heart of colonialism. And so, you know, the kind of imposition of particularly gendered formations um, is there. So I suppose that's kind of how I was thinking about it. Not as, um, not as, you know, the feminist project as being something else, but actually thinking about what happens if you put colonialism in, yes, you see race as structuring, but you probably also see gender as structuring as well in ways that might matter differently.
1: Yeah, no, yeah I-, I
3: just want to jump in as well sorry and just say that I absolutely with the feminist epistemology and as the starting point, but I think that the gender question is particularly important to. Um, one of the fictions on the modern subject as uh, the subject with a capability to property, because of course woman is the first colony as as it were, be, uh, wh- who is possessed as property in the person and that this. This, you know, the feminist theorizing of woman as property in the person is really, you know, as in Pateman and Mills, is, is, is really important to understanding how this modern subjectivity is tied up in the politics of contract and as domination, as unconsented contract of domination. So, you know, I would say that it's very fitting with your five fictions and, but it, it expands it quite voluminously. I
2: mean, possibly, sort of, uh, well, I don't know, controversially or not, but there's a sense in which the book isn't about race and it's not about gender and it is about the conceptual architecture of modern social theory. And I think colonialism as a particular sort of process obviously has an impact on the way in which people come to be racialized and racial inequality comes to be established and it has implications for constructions of gender and understandings of identity in particular sorts of ways. And I think there's something else about colonialism as a particular sort of process, because I mean, just taking this example about women as owned, well, in the context of sort of social contract, that may be true, but they're not dehumanized in the way that populations come to be dehumanized through being taken into ownership collectively en masse and alienated by being transported across an ocean and forced to live in conditions of enslavement and coercion and forced labor and and so on. And so in a sense, thinking about the structural processes associated with colonialism and how they've established inequalities within the world that aren't internal to communities but are actually between populations and between communities and how that's come to establish a sort of form of inequality globally is something that was the focus of what we were doing. And that's not to say that there shouldn't, other people shouldn't do other sorts of work in relation to that, but it wasn't something that we sort of forgot or neglected. It's something that that isn't how we conceptualize the project that we were doing.
3: Yeah, just being re- located in Ireland, it's really not possible to think that, um, you know, this idea that uh, 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 women were not, you know, institutionally um, uh, incarcerated, their bodies used they uh, through the control of sexuality and reproduction, put into uh, institutions in, in numbering in many, many thousands, um, causing incredible suffering. And this is the kind of historical legacy, the major historical legacy that uh, the modern state has to deal with today is its historical, the historical burden of um, institutionalized women and children uh, who who were, you know you could say, colonised in the sense of their, their control of the reproduction and sexual uh, of the reproductive function of women through control of sec, uh, normative sexuality. But anyway, we could go on forever on this one, but I absolutely accept your... Um...
0: Okay, great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and wrap like four questions into one, so you're going to have to kind of bear with me. But there's quite a few questions that are similar. Basically, The question is, and I'm summarising four people. So for those people, I'm sorry if I butcher your questions. Um, Do we need to just do away with social theory? Like, as it's, you know, like, is it useless? Um, And related to that, do we need to do away with teaching um, singular thinkers week by week and thinking about things in a different way, in a connected way, one might say? Um, And then relatedly, like, what are the implications of teaching like a broader like um, canon? That was like a few wrapped into one, Um, so yeah. Jump in, anyone that wants to tackle
1: those. Well, You know, there are many ways in which which one would wish that one didn't have to start where one is, where one is, but uh, the problem is one could do away with, the teaching of classical social theory that's absolutely the case but it's interesting that it hasn't been done away with despite the fact that i think it's uh, not done very well and i include not done very well by myself in a previous life that is the uh, it has become a part of the curriculum in which there's certain Kinds of ways in which the discipline uh, uh, represents itself, and one is and and by writing a book to say get rid of it, one wouldn't get rid of it. It would continue to be uh, addressed in that sort of way. So the important thing that we were thinking about when writing the book was to give resources for and ideas through which people could engage with that material differently, make a different kind of sense of it, and practice sociology differently. There's lots of things in my career in sociology that have gone out of the discipline. It's interesting that the one thing that hasn't gone out is classical... uh, uh, social theory. What is interesting is that contemporary social theory has fragmented in ways that uh, 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 isn't so in the way in which people uh, address a canon. I don't think it, you know, it's obviously good to add other figures to the canon and to be engaged with their rights, but the reason for being engaged with figures in the canon is because of the way they help us to think about pressing uh, current issues. And sociology is still conducted in the language and register of its uh, uh, classics, even among those who repudiate the the classics. So nearly everybody uses the language of class, notwithstanding, issues of, uh, that might make us want to rethink class through the lens of colonialism. So I kind of think uh, it's there to stay and therefore engage with it.
2: I mean, it's also I mean, in a way, the the focus on Marx, Weber, Durkheim and the other authors that we engage with is linked to a politics of knowledge production, which can't be disassociated from the politics that constructs the world. And so to the extent that colonialism has knit the world into a very particular sort of space then the authors that have come to be seen to be significant in understanding that world, albeit in terms of the modern world and not in terms of colonialism, have also been diffused along with the processes of colonialism to become figures that people in other parts of the world have felt the need also to engage with. So it's to sort of say that the colonialism isn't just about material practices, but it also becomes about intellectual practices. So sociology courses taught in other parts of the world beyond Europe and North America often also engage with Marx, Weber and Durkheim. And even when they engage also with other figures from different localities, they're also sort of engaging with the particular ideas that have come to be associated with these figures, such as the nation state, such as class, such as modern subjectivity and so on. And these, because they're shaped in a way almost imperceptibly by our engagement with these figures, they're seem to be somehow abstract concepts and categories without a recognition of how they themselves are deeply embedded in, colonial conditions out of which they emerge and so in a sense we're wanting to highlight that and there'll be a whole range of resources that we can draw on to develop alternatives and to think about how this um these modes of, of understanding need to be transformed i don't think we're there yet because we can't just wish away a we can't wish away the world that we're in and b we can't wish away the tools that are dominant as forms of understanding that world. And so to move away from where we are requires us to work with what we have is, is the position that I guess we would start from, that we need to work from where we are with what we are to create the possibility of getting to somewhere else.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm going to move on then just because we've got quite a lot of questions to try and uh, work our way through. Um, to come in, This one's this one's to you, but I think it could be could be broadened out if people want to um, answer. But ha- how does the, the work kind of presented in the book um, dovetail with the project of decolonising the university? Um, do you think that this broader canon must be introduced only in the university or should it begin at school level? Um, Lastly, many former colonies such as India do not acknowledge the presence of colonial influences in their education, both at school and at university level. How could this rethinking of social theory be decentered from Britain and other European countries and brought to countries like India?
2: I mean, I think people elsewhere have been doing a lot of this work in their own particular ways and so on. So it's partly an issue that we here in Britain and Europe, perhaps the West more broadly, haven't necessarily understood the extent to which how the worlds within which we live have been shaped by those broader processes of colonization. So the countries that have been colonized aren't ever allowed to forget the fact that they've been colonized and that they've been shaped by the colonial relation. Here in Europe and in Britain, we react so strongly against the idea that Britain has been made by colonialism, And one of the reasons we react against it so strongly here is because if we accept that we have been made by colonialism and we accept that colonialism is problematic to put it euphemistically, then what would the consequences of that recognition be in terms of how we engage in the politics of the world in the present? What would we need to repair or provide in reparations for this inequality And so I think in that sense, again, it's not straightforwardly that this book is a standalone book, but it's part of many initiatives, conversations, and processes of how we rethink the modes of knowledge production as well as the world as it tends to be described as having come into being. So it's that aspect of putting history at the center of our understandings and thinking how a focus on colonial histories would enable us to think about other aspects of knowledge production differently.
0: Yeah, I think that touches on a few of the questions. So thank you for that, Glenda. I've got another question um, from Chris about Marx. Um, Are you treating Marx as a sociologist um, or Marx as a revolutionary thinker and activist? Um, if the former, I can understand why you see Du Bois, but not Marx as disruptive of the canon. If the latter, I don't, is basically the question. Um.
1: It's uh, I mean, we see Marx as both, but we are discussing modern social theory. So discussing Marx in relation to modern social theory. If one Takes the issue of what is the relationship between theory and practice, then our argument would be just as insofar as Marx's theory is problematic around the issue of colonialism, so a revolutionary practice that failed to be adequate to colonialism would also be deficient. So one can't separate out the uh, being. Uh, you know, to say that while well, being a revolutionary is disruptive by definition, if the revolution that one is engaged in is not the revolution that takes place, and that's part of the problem of addressing the relationship between Marx and his revolutionary politics and Marx and his social theory. So, we are definitely focused on the social theory, but we don't think there's a solution by going to the politics because the social theory and the politics are connected and in part the problem lies in the heart of Marx's social theory and the way in which he organizes uh, politics in terms of assumptions about capitalist modernity and in effect the progress of a proletariat defined in Eurocentric uh, terms. That I think would be the... Uh...
0: Yeah, thanks for that. Also that gives it, that's a nice segue with the Eurocentrism into another two questions that I'm gonna to put together. Cause there's a couple of questions basically thinking about different um, social theorists um, and some of the questions I guess raised in the book and in this discussion. And the first one is that um, Brian Turner seems to deal with the Orientalist discourses, post-colonial issues that that empower a knowledge spectrum. Um, His studies overlap with Said's Orientalism and cultural imperialism. Could we see Turner as a significant and informed social theorist in regard with the decolonization of social theory? And I guess related to that second question, someone asked um, or commented and asked that Bourdieu was doing his fieldwork in Algeria at the same time as Fanon. Um, Yet yeah, Fanon's influence on Borgia has been omitted um, from Bourdieu's work. Um, how can we bring these dialogues together and address some of these absences like Marx, Fanon, and Marx in the Shariati? How do we connect it all together, I guess? And should we? And does it matter?
1: I, if I just take briefly the Turner question, is, and of course what i am got to say is not intended to be dismissive, but in a sense to locate it in terms of the themes that we're arguing in the book. So, Brian Turner's work is uh, Weberian. He is committed to a position represented as multiple modernities, which we argue separately is not uh, a, an adequate response to the issue of, uh, issues of colonialism and so on. So by all means, and certainly read uh, Turner, I think it's also important to read people, uh, not only for what they are, but for what they might be and we think are not. So I think it would be interesting and significant to read him through a post-colonial lens but the purpose is not really to rehabilitate particular authors, but in a sense to make uh, you know to establish arguments which will be effective in clarifying uh, sociological uh, you know further sociological uh, uh, positions. And you know I think uh, uh, the it is interesting the issue of the relationship between Bourdieu and Fanon, I think what it's an indication of is the relation of France and Algeria and the problem of the particular form of uh, French colonialism and the way in which settler colonialism was so close to Europe and indeed within Europe in the sense that uh, Algeria was integrated Into the idea of the French polity, but integrated in a settler colonial uh, fashion. So I think that the issue of Fanon and Bourdieu speaks about how the boundaries of Europe are really problematic. And although we discuss uh, colonialism, modern colonialism, as in a sense empire at a distance, it is also empire at a distance which is very close and seeks to incorporate colonized and settled peoples within uh, the national polity. So I think there is a problem of France within our self-understandings of Europe, which is a different problem to the problem of Britain within self-understandings of Europe.
0: Great, cheers for that, John. Um, I also think the yeah, Bourdieu would say that he wasn't influenced by Fanon, I think, because uh, he's gonna have a little bit of a beef um, on a minor scale as these academics tend to do. Uh, much ado about nothing, I'm sure. Um, relatedly, I guess, um, what, how would you contrast the circumstances with which um, this book was written and the context in which Giddens' book was written? there, if you'd like to come in on that, because we've heard enough from John for now.
2: Well, I mean, when Giddens' book came out, we hadn't yet joined the European Union. We've now left it. So there's a whole sort of 50 years of... Being part of a different sort of project. And it's sort of interesting to think about it in those terms in a way, because one of the arguments that, uh, you know, many of us have made and thought about is the way in which the fact of Britain entering the EEC in 1973 was one way of it refusing to have to deal with the processes of decolonization that were going on. And so shifting from empire and Commonwealth and facing the loss of empire, And moving into the EEC meant that Britain continued to have a role in the world in a way that didn't necessarily reflect what its status now was, or then was, as a consequence of having lost lost its uh, territories elsewhere. Now, at the point of leaving the European Union, there's a sense of you know, within the initial discourses, there was all this stuff about, oh, well, we're just going to redo empire 2.0 before they realized that empire 2.0 might not be the best way to try and establish trade deals with these countries, which were now independent. But it shows a sort of longevity of thought about Britain's place in the world, its relationship to other places and how it's now having to face a very different sort of context where it's not part of the European Union and it doesn't have an empire or commonwealth in that in the way in which it imagined itself to have and so it's this shift from or to this idea of being a small island you know Andrea Levy has this Uh, novel about small island uh, called small island in which there's a sense that the small island could be the island in the Caribbean from which the protagonists come but they soon come to realize that Britain has become the small island because Britain doesn't actually recognize that these people who've come from other parts of empire were nonetheless part of that particular polity so perhaps it's a more stark Worlds that we're facing or a, a, a need to reflect on that history is starker now than it was because there was a sense in the 70s of still believing in the possibility of being something other than who we are and now we can't quite maintain that fiction. I don't know, do you want to add anything to that John?
1: No, but it, I think it is interesting to note that when Giddens wrote, it's in the immediate aftermath of the uh, decolonization movement. So, the situation in Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, South Africa, you know, these are very vivid moments at that point in 1971. And they're absent from the book. And I think, by and large, absent from. Uh, British sociology, except insofar as they're brought into British sociology, as uh, Govinda is suggesting, either from emigre academics from South Africa or from the uh, uh, Caribbean and so on. So I think it's, um, uh, it, it, that is a, 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 a particular aspect. And Giddens is really focusing on the issue of the modernization of Britain Overcoming aspects of its um, what one might call its uh, uh, unmodern past through social democracy and so on so it's a it, it's a formative moment in in British sociology, and we can see now as Gaminda was saying that uh, the post-colonial and the decolonial context of britain was central to it and yet it bypassed uh sociologists uh formed within britain as a narrow nation
0: great thanks for that john um michael i've got a question for you um, and someone said basically your point about the relative relevance of these discussions with other related social science disciplines um, such as um social anthropology as you mentioned development studies, geography um is an important one. So I guess the question is, could you say a little bit more about placing in time and space um, concepts like um, subsistence, indigenous livelihood, and so on, and how they can be brought into like sort of teaching um, teaching practices?
4: I don't know how much more I can actually say, but um i th- I think that what what i was I was remembering, I was kind of kind of dragging up. Uh, some of the knowledge that I have suppressed since uh, moving from anthropology into sociology and I was thinking particularly I mean I know that there is that kind of characterization of social anthropology as about being about pre-modern societies but there was an entire European turn at one stage and at the center of that European turn was a discussion around the relationship between well, well it wasn't a discussion about the relationship between tradition and modernity it was actually a discussion around those concepts and what work they could do in anthropology as well as kind of discussions around the kind of temporal positioning of um, communities who didn't resemble the modern society around us around Europeans um and you know as as somehow back in time so that kind of cellular approach that you were talking about and I know that you know, particularly in the UK context, anthropology and sociology are quite distinct from one another as disciplines. And I do wonder whether having some of those conversations together, and I, I mean, I know that Gminder's looked at some of the, the, the ways in which um, anthropology has developed as well, uh, might, might open up a space. And obviously it's not for that book, but, um, but, but it, would be, um, it would be interesting to kind of bring some anthropologists, not me, other anthropologists into the conversation, um, to see what they have to say
0: about it. Um, John and Gamin, do you have anything to say to that? We'll see.
4: Yeah, I'll jump in with um, development
3: studies, which I think, you know, is because it's a, a discipline that's constituted out of uh, the need to continue colonization, you know, to, to develop. And it, this also comes back to the, the resource line or whatever. It's It's really the need to, continue colonialism by other means. And that is what development studies really is all about. So it's, um, it's a necessity to decolonize development studies, obviously. Uh, but it, it to do that comes back down to think, rethinking the social and, and, and you know, sub, subjects. So, so yes, those themes, livelihood, sustainability, all that all relate back to these meta fictions of, you know, stadial theory and, 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 and uh, who, you know, what is the modern subject, um, methodological nationalism, uh, 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 and, you know, I suppose, you know, surplus, well, you know, the, the question of free versus unfree labor and, and the, the accumulation broadly, I suppose. So all of those things are kind of central to development studies, but it's not something that development studies necessarily wants to get with all the time right? Because they, they like to think that they are practical people who have, you know, more, you know, pressing problems
1: to solve. Perhaps I can come in and take because I, I noticed that uh, Sunil Kumar has um, posted twice on the topic, which I think is uh, related to this. And I say that there's an issue of the relation between sociology and economics. Economics is perhaps the most international of disciplines in terms of how it organizes itself and indeed thinks in terms of the global and the international as its uh, as its field sociology has a particular relation to economics and primarily through the concept of class so challenging the concept of class is partly challenging the relationship between sociology and economics and that does mean, I think, a different way of looking at uh, 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 global inequality than the way in which uh, Piketty and uh, Savage look at it, which is very much in terms of an international uh, uh, division of labor and cross-national comparisons. And as uh, Gaminder has argued elsewhere, those. Uh, cross-national comparisons elide the fact that the entities were uh, imperial entities with political processes and economic processes uh, related to the construction of empire. So what does it mean to compare inequality between India and America or India and Britain without recognizing that Britain and India were part of a single entity, one of which was appropriating resources from the other. So the inequality in India is not separate from inequality in in Britain. And uh, and that uh, approaching these issues uh, uh, through a lens of colonialism, we would think about international inequalities Differently, including the issue of uh, the, ne- the necessity of recognising how uh, the patrimony that constructs uh, the uh, pattern of national income in Britain is a patrimony that comes from empire, and at the same time has depleted places that are uh, otherwise represented internationally as poor. They are made poor by the process that makes Britain wealthy uh, uh, and so on. And so one has to have uh, a conceptualization of of empire as a political and economic organisation. And that means going beyond the class critique of uh, uh, economics, which in sociology is still done within national terms
2: just to add as one final thing in relation to that in terms of how this politics is to be challenged that is the politics that's associated with the standard understandings what i would argue strongly is for this idea of a reparative social science which precisely makes empire the political unit of analysis and not the nation and recognizes within that that as john was saying that the inequalities that exist in the world are inequalities that very much come out of colonial histories, and we cannot separate them off as problems of elsewhere, but recognize them as problems that we have created elsewhere. And then what would it mean for us to take responsibility for the creation of those problems and work through a more adequate lens of reparations as a way of drawing connections between different places, and then think together about how these are to be addressed. And so there's a reparative social science linked to an idea of material reparations that I think is necessary to challenge both the inadequate forms of social science as well as the inadequate forms of politics that those social sciences are
4: associated with.
0: Okay, great, thanks for that. Um, so you've got probably about 10 minutes left. So I'm gonna do a quick fire round of questions. Um, so firstly, Chris, Chris has been quite relentless in the questions box and has come back with three questions um, related to Northern Ireland and Ireland. So I'm just gonna ask it quickly. Um, Is there a blind spot within modern social theory um, on Northern Ireland and Ireland generally? Um, And Chris says a blind spot on Northern Ireland is what enabled Brexit and the form that it's taken. Does colonial, how does colonialism and modern social theory overcome or perpetuate this Northern Ireland um, blind spot? And then relatedly, Just Yeah, that's it basically, that's the question.
1: Uh, Well, it's a complicated answer. So I agree uh, thoroughly with you, Chris, that uh, there is a problem within Britain of how we understand our relationship to Ireland, including Northern Ireland. There's a failure to understand that as a complex Colonial uh, relationship. I say a complex colonial relationship because, of course, there are different accounts within Ireland of the relationship between Ireland, the United Kingdom, and uh, uh, the issue of uh, of Northern Ireland. Yes, uh, uh, Ireland was subject to colonial to settler colonial uh, practices. And indeed, some of the uh, most, uh, 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 some of the forms of exemplary violence that were used within uh, uh, the maintenance of colonialism by the the British uh, state were uh, tested out or had their first outings uh, uh, within, uh, within Ireland. And of course, there are also continuities in terms of political movements between Ireland and India at different stages in uh, uh, terms of mutual recognition about famine and so on. So all of that is absolutely correct. uh, um, uh, Unfortunately, from the point of view of colonialism and modern social theory, on one hand, we necessarily reproduce that because most of our theorists are not British theorists, it's European social uh, theorists. So there is the paradox of the character of social thought within England and the relationship of that to um, the British state more generally. And we try to deal with that in the context of Hobbes and Locke and uh, reference to Ireland Uh, also in terms of uh, uh, Scottish Enlightenment and the construction of the uh, 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 ideas of stadial theory within the, the Scottish Enlightenment. So what one could say is that the book is an invitation to apply the deconstruction of sociological thought in an Irish context in order to understand both Ireland and the United Kingdom differently, and yes, indeed, to understand Brexit as uh, currently uh, broken on the problem of the failure to understand Northern Ireland and its place within and out with Britain.
0: Great, thanks for that. So next, uh, quickfire question—quite uh, loaded question, I think. Can you give an example of one idea that Weber and Durkheim have that is fundamental to the future of sociology? <laughs> I don't know.
2: Well, John will probably uh, be sympathetic to Durkheim, and I think Durkheim <laughs> is quite uh, interesting in in you know sort of doing the reading again um, of these theorists and so on although Weber I think is probably responsible for most of what I would suggest is inadequate about the social sciences and so the commitment to a barbarian analysis is what has been deeply problematic and not enabling the discipline to actually develop and transform itself because the key concept or the idea of ideal types has been one of the ways in which the discipline almost structurally prohibits the possibility of learning from others because if a challenge is made to something that's central within an understanding that has been constructed as an ideal type the response is oh well you can go and construct your own other ideal type somewhere else this has got nothing to do your critique doesn't impinge upon what it is that I said because you're coming from a different context or this is a different thing so there's almost an inbuilt refusal to learn within a barbarian sociology and that is antithetical to what we're putting, presenting as what is needed within the discipline. Mm
1: -hmm. Can can I add Durkheim because it was a a point that, I mean, it's there in the comment from Rose, but also uh, Shireen had asked the question about religion and secularism before. The interesting thing, about Durkheim, I think, or what I find most uh, exciting in Durkheim is the way in which he understands secularism to be religious. and Or that there is a religious element within uh, secularism. And in consequence, he opens up the space for thinking about the relationship between religion and uh, secularism, not as a relation between two forms of uh, Two different forms of thought, but as an interfaith dialogue. And I think if, um, uh, and in the current context of French politics, which has its direct analogy within British uh, politics in terms of Islamophobia and so on, the under, that that way of thinking of uh, secularism uh, has not different from religion, is I think a really urgent uh, need within European politics.
3: Can I just jump in very yep. briefly? I know we're short on time, but uh, it just occurred to me that part of the, this discussion really about the kind of blind spots around religion and secularization and the importance of Durkheim, um, you know, Durkheim's thought of as a kind of was-Jew now ecumenical, you know, religious, civil religion thinker, but his thought is very central and very similar to Catholic social thought, which tries to bridge, tries to counter the threat of secularization by, by developing its own version of secularization, but Catholic. Um, and it, it's it, in general, I think in European modern social theory, it's a bit of a blind spot that we don't highlight that more because it's been extremely influential in determining, you know, like human rights and the definition of humanity and and discussions about the modern subject.
0: Great, thank you for that. Um, to Boulis, there's just so many questions. I'm just going to read like a few of them out and then. Say we don't have time to answer them. Um, but there's a good question on how decolonial social theory could contend with newer forms of settler colonialism, such in places like Israel. Someone asked, What do you mean by deconstructing social theory when using post colonial theory? I guess we'll never know because we've run out of time, um, unfortunately. So I'm going to put some links into the box for everyone to check out. Obviously, um, order your copy of the book if you haven't already. Um, and if you want a discount, Go to politybooks.com because everybody loves a discount and use the code poll21. Once again, this event will be shared on the Connected Sociologies YouTube channel. So subscribe um, to the YouTube channel and watch all the videos and like them all as well while you're there. Um, follow the Connected Sociologies Curriculum Project on Twitter and the Sociological Review on Twitter and both on Instagram as well. Because um, these social media channels are apparently important. Um, for making it look big and important. Um, And check out the Connected Sociology Curriculum's um, resources, because there were some questions related to teaching and things like that. And I feel like these resources can maybe help in those ways, hopefully can help in those ways, um, or leave people more confused, depending on how good a job we've done in putting them together. Um, But once again, this event was hosted by the Connected Sociology's Curriculum Project and the Sociological Review Foundation. Um, And yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you very much um, to Gaminda and John for writing the book. And coming to talk about it. And also Mikla and Sue for giving up their time to act as discussants. And obviously, thank you all for your questions and apologies that I couldn't get to them all. I did my best, but it's like, you know, juggling many plates. But yeah, thank you, everyone.
2: And just to say thanks from, from me and from John. And you know, it was really great for you to read the book and to comment on it and for all the questions. It's sort of it's sort of exciting to think about how we can develop these conversations over time and and pick up on many of the things that people have suggested that we still need to do, because there's always much to do. So thanks so much for coming and uh, we'll see you. Have you got the slide, Amit, that you could put up? Bye.
1: Thank you. Bye.